Welcome to the Story Talks Back. Almost everything that we remember, think about, or imagine is a story. Stories entertain us, inform us, and even define us. They have upsides, and they have downsides. This podcast explores the power of story in every aspect of our lives. I'm Dave Stanton. Thank you for joining us. Carolyn Fourche upset the polite norms of the poetic establishment in 1981 with her breakthrough poetry collection, The Country Between Us. Centered on a cycle of poems inspired by Fourche's months reporting in war-torn El Salvador, the book was named the 1981 Lamont Poetry Selection and became a bestseller among poetry books. Almost 40 years later, Fourche was a National Book Award finalist for her first full-length book of prose, a memoir of her time in El Salvador titled What You Have Heard Is True. Forche has also published three other books of poetry, including The Angel of History, which the Los Angeles Times named the best poetry book of 1994, and In the Lateness of the World, which was published earlier this year to high acclaim. She teaches at Georgetown University where she directs the Lannan Center for Poetics and Social Practice. Welcome to the Story Talks Back, Carolyn Forche. It's really wonderful to have you here and appreciate your time very much. Thank you. We had talked about you possibly reading something from your new book, In the Lateness of the World. Mm-hmm. And uh, I wonder if you'd mind starting with that, maybe saying a little about the poem. For Ilya Saskia-Selo, um, I met the poet Ilya Kaminsky when he was 19 years old. He enrolled in one of my summer workshops at the New York State Summer Writers Institute, and we became friends. And over the years, he studied with me. He came to all of my classes that I was teaching in an MFA program while he was still an undergraduate. Mm -hmm. And finally, um, we decided uh, to, to go to Ukraine, he was going to go back for the first time. This was in 2004. So it was perhaps a decade after I met him. He had grown up in Odessa and come with his family to the United States as a teenager. I think he was 15 when he got to the United States. And um, so I decided it would be good for him to go back to Odessa. And I had some money from an advance for a book So I took us to Odessa and then to Russia because we wanted to go to St. Petersburg and visit the shrines of the silver poets of the Russian poetry of the 20th century, Anna Kmatova, Marina Svetaivia, and Auschwitz Mandelstam. And so after leaving Odessa, we went to St. Petersburg and included in our itinerary there was a visit to Sarskeselo, which is the palace, the summer palace of the czars. It's a beautiful uh, place. And it is also where Anna Akhmatova spent her teenage years in the summers. Mm. And so Alexander Pushkin uh, has a lycée named after him there because he attended that lycée at Sarskiselo. So among other things, we visited the lycée. And I remember because Ilya is profoundly hard of hearing 
um, or he's challenged in hearing. Uh, we were standing at a window and a branch was waving in the wind. And Ilya said to me, if you were deaf, you would imagine that that branch was making a noise of some kind. You wouldn't know what it was, but you would imagine that. And I said, well, I don't hear anything. And he said, that's because you can't see sound. <laughs> so and he, he could. It's a wonderful imagination. But um, so I began the poem just at Sarskiselo, thinking I'm going to talk about the beauty of this place and the school and the, and the magnificence of being in the classroom where Alexander Puskin actually studied. And then um, it occurred to me, well, what happens in a classroom? We learn things. And I began to imagine the lessons that we might learn in that classroom. Mm -hmm. And I say something to Ilya at the end, a last something for Ilya at Sarskiselo. We stand at the casement window of Puskin's Lycée. These are the desks where Puskin wrote. His chalkboards, his astrolabe. Snow falls from here into the past and vanishes on golden minarets. Snow recedes from the birches. A lesson writes itself in winter chalk. On the day Michelangelo died in Rome, Galileo was born in Pisa. Isaac Newton was born the year Galileo died. When they searched for the poet Kabir, they found nothing beneath his shroud but a sprig of jasmine. Man is like the statue whispering about the marble chiseled from his mouth. You are the guardian of this statue standing in your silent world. The year Isaac Newton died, there was a barn fire in a puppet show. Kabir says all corpses go to the same place and the world has fallen in love with a dream. This life is not the same as your other life. We are here now in one of the shrines of the silver poets. You are one of the silver. The snow is a white peacock in a Russian poem. Beautiful. Thank you. The, uh, the part that I love the most is the part about the statue, you know, uh, whispering about the clay that's been taken from the mouth. And then you say to Ilya, I think, that he's the guardian of the statue. So what does that mean to you in terms of him as a writer? Is that what you're talking about there, do you think? Or Well, Ilya is, Ilya is a very special poet. He's preternaturally gifted. He was from the very beginning. I was astonished at what he was writing as a teenager. And so I knew I was in the presence of the real thing you know, a real poet, a born poet. But to, to this gift, Ilya also brings his silence mm -hmm. and, his, and his deep experience of silence. When I, when I first, when he was young, I don't know if he still does this, but he has uh, hearing aids that 
are a little tiny bit helpful to him. But when he really wants to be in, on his own and to have his world back, he takes them off so that he can relax and he doesn't have that audio thing going on. Uh, and so one of the things I realized, I was reading Max Picard because I wanted to understand silence and I wanted to better understand Ilya because it's very interesting that an art form made out of language and the music of language and all of the resonance of language should be, should emerge in someone who actually couldn't very well hear language. Mm -hmm. And I, so I wanted to understand how he perceived the world, what it felt like to be him. That I did not succeed at doing, it's impossible. <laughs> but, uh, but we used to talk about Max Picard a lot. And, um, and, and I think I made him the guardian of the statue whispering because he could, he, he could understand that statue better than we could. Mm -hmm. A statue that, that begins to speak when his, when what was preceding his mouth actually disappeared is then presided over and guarded by someone who who can't who can't hear in the way that we hear in the same way so he wouldn't hear the whispers either in fact there's another poem in the book where we stumbled into a we stumbled into a synagogue a little synagogue and it was one of the last synagogues in the city and it was still uh, a working synagogue with a congregation and a, a rabbi and he was trying to make money by selling matzos you know big stacks of them and so we accidentally bought way way too many matzos you know we just didn't know what we were doing and um and then he took us into the synagogue and he said it had a magical wall in it and you could stand, each of us could stand on the other side of this massive wall and whisper and be heard on the other side. Mm. But he didn't understand that Ilya wouldn't hear anything even on the same side of the wall. So Ilya just shrugged, he's very good natured and happy and he just shrugged and he said, let's just do it to please him. So all of that entered another poem from our same journey. It sort of raises to me the question of, you know, the role of speaking in storytelling yeah. and in poetry. Right. Um, you know, that the spoken story is obviously the origin of stories, um, but we can have stories now without any sound. Yes. Do you feel that, um, how, how important is it for you in developing your writing to read it aloud and, and hear it? Absolutely essential. While I'm writing, I read everything aloud. I pace back and forth and read it aloud. I listen to how it sounds. The sentence isn't finished being polished and changed and altered until it sounds right, mm -hmm. you know? So I do it for the poetry and I wound up carrying that same uh, practice over when I was writing my first long form prose book. But Yes, I, well, I couldn't tell you why, but I can only tell you that I can't compose without hearing it aloud, which is another reason that I'm so in awe of Ilya. Mm -hmm. you know, because I know he hears his poems. 
even though he doesn't hear them the way I would. He hears, he can hear the vibration of his language. Yeah, yeah. Do you feel that um, every poem is a story in a way? Or is it a very separate type of format or form? Well, when we're talking about the chiseled lyric, you know, or something that approaches the song-like quality of the lyric, it doesn't embody a story, but it certainly springs from one. There, I think some poems are responses. They're responsorial to a, to a story rather than, uh, rather than narrating a story. There are poems, you know, the poet Larry Levis, for example, he can tell, he can weave a whole story into his poems, which are really made of voice. They're made of utterance. They're made of a kind of meditative speaking that is um, meditative speaking back through memory. He's not telling the memory. He's gesturing toward an emanation of the memory. The memory is there in the past and it, it emanates a kind of tone and feeling and that is what the poem carries over. So I think all writing has a relation to story and all language does too. Um, naming has a relation to story. You know, to, to say this is a tree, this is a snake, you know, from the earliest Genesis, you know, it, it suggests it suggests story. I believe that through language and story, we make our meaning of the world. We construct our consciousness, in fact, and we interrogate our consciousness. And so um, what's interesting about writing poetry is that you are making an art with the only, I would call it a substance that humans have actually created out of nothing. So, you know, that wasn't drawn from anything but our own, our own minds, our own mouths, you know. We shaped languages, thousands of languages. Right. A diminishing number of languages now, but it's a magnificent creation. And all poetry is, is making art out of it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would think about the you know, particularly the boatmen, um, you know, the people who have either directly asked you to tell their story mm -hmm. in a poem or whose stories have sort of demanded that you write something about them. Does that create a different approach to the poem in the sense that you're, you almost have the responsibility of bearing witness to this person? Um, you know, when you're, when you travel the world, when you're traveling around, whether it's in your own country or the rest of the world, a surprising number of people, if they find out you're a poet, or even if they find out you're a writer, um, they will take you places and tell you things, <laughs> mostly on the condition that you will write about it or they will hope that you will. But I've been shown so many secret places and interesting things by people just because they found out I was a writer. I was taken into a military 
insane asylum in Poland, for example, because someone th thought I should see this. I was in Beirut working for National Public Radio in 1984, and one of the other journalists took me to the absolutely destroyed Plaza of the Martyrs in the middle of the night after curfew because he said, you're a poet, you should see this. They have great faith that in poetry and in what it eventually can carry over of our experience onto the page. So it's funny, I've tried for a long time, I've hoped, no, I haven't tried, I've hoped for a long time that that, 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 that rubble of the plaza of the martyrs and the darkness would come to the page, it never has. Mm. But they, so people give you gifts, these gifts are experiences or their own stories. Now with the boatman, um, I was teaching at Marquette University, it was winter in Milwaukee for a semester as a visiting professor. And I was living in a hotel downtown. So I was walking everywhere. Um, I didn't have a car. And when, it, when the weather was really brutal, which was often in the winter in Milwaukee, I would flag down a cab and take the cab to the university and back. Um, and this one man picked me up more than once, more than twice. And then he noticed even, he said, I've driven you before. <laughs> well, there are hundreds of cabs circling the streets of downtown, Minneapolis, um, downtown Milwaukee. Uh, and I said, I know, I remember you too. And I said, where are you from? And he said, I am from Homs in Syria. And then he began to talk. He had a lot on his mind because he was completely traumatized about he had, had very recently left Homs, but he had made his way as far as Wisconsin, you know, to, and, and he began driving cabs. When people, when refugees come, if they're allowed to work, uh, often, you know, other Syrians will be driving cabs. So they'll say, well, come here, you can drive a cab, you know. So suddenly there's many, many Syrians driving cabs in Milwaukee. And He's, one day it was snowing and he pulled up in front of the hotel and he was telling me his life. And snow fell and the snow fell and the snow started covering the cab. And we were out in front of the hotel and he said, I'm going to tell you how I got here. I'm going to tell you what I saw on my journey uh, away from Syria. If you promise someday you will write about it. I said, well, I will try. That's what I can promise. But I don't know if it will happen. And uh, he said, okay, fair enough, you know. So he, that was the day in the snow, during the snow, snowy blizzard, he, he, we just sat outside the hotel and he told me the story that became the boatman. And then while I was writing it, I, I realized that I was in the region or the sphere of Hades. And I was in the region of the ferryman, you know, who ferries the souls of the dead across the river or the river sticks, you know, the river, is it river sticks, I think. And you have to pay him, you know, to take you across. And so he, this man from Syria actually said to me, he said something like, look at me, I'm driving a taxi at the end of the world. You know, this was what he said. And it, it really has felt like the end of the world for a few years, you would agree. This was only a few years ago. It was the end of his world. It was the end of Homs. So one day it, the poem started coming and I let it. And most of it is comprised of the things he told me, including the hotel in 
Rome that's named Tom's. Mm -hmm. Everything that he told me went into the poem, mostly, mostly, especially the most harrowing part. And, and he kept saying the cold rubber boat, cold rubber boat, you know. He always modified rubber boat with cold. And the rubber boat was really the center of the story. And it was the boat he clung to in the, in the cold water, you know, at, at sea. And I had been in Greece for seven summers before that, teaching in the summers and on the island of Thassos, which is very close to Lesbos. Mm -hmm. And there were lots of boats in the Aegean. And the Greeks, the fishermen and others were trying to help the people. They were trying to rescue them, pull them out of the water. Uh, they pull them off the beach, take them into their houses. This became illegal. You can't assist refugees unless you are official government person. And of course, the Greeks that I knew didn't care about whether it was legal or not. That wasn't the issue for them. And so I was familiar with the situation of the refugees in the Aegean. And so when I met him, of course, I was really, really, I, I felt like maybe I was a little more open than I may have been, you know, to what he was telling me of your experience. Yeah, and the Aegean, you know, was quickly becoming a tomb, uh, a watery tomb, because right. hundreds, thousands of people drowned in, in the Aegean in, in those years, and still are in the Mediterranean, and possibly in, I think, also in the Aegean. Now there's a game being played between Greece and Turkey, you know, pushing the, the rubber boats, you know, toward Turkey, then pushing them back out to sea. And humanity has lost its soul. It, it's, it's, it's not, they're not rescuing each other anymore. We know that from North America too. I wanted to sort of take a step back and ask you, um, you know, where you feel your original connection to words and storytelling might come from? You know, were there stories in your childhood or were telling stories or uh, capturing things in words important? Yes, I, 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 I read as a child. Uh, I was read to and I read and I acted out the things I was reading with the dolls and my father built a, a very large dollhouse that would fit our dolls. Huh. And we, and so we acted out all of the stories we read. You know, I was, I would read things like Little Women by Louisa May Alcott, and then we would have the Little Women dolls and we would make the Little Women stories happen. And we would invent new stories for the Little Women too. So it was a combination of languages. I heard Slovak spoken in my house by my grandmother and my father and other relatives. I heard Latin at mass because it was before the ecumenical council. And so everything was in Latin. So languages were fascinating to me. Um, and I, I thought of other languages as the languages of secrets. And so I began to be entranced by the music of a language I didn't understand. How I first fell in love with the music of language was by listening to Slovak and listening to Latin and listening to the French Canadians who lived all around me. And, you know, so, so 
if you don't understand a language, it flows around you in a music and you're not, you're not hampered by intelligibility. Uh-huh. All you're doing is listening to pure sound and patternings of sound. So then when I was nine, my mother started showing me poems and teaching me about meters. And mm. it was a very snowy day. We were snowed in and she assigned me to write a poem. Mm. So I don't know whether she knew that I was already enchanted or whether it was just pulled something out of a hat for me to do, you know, but I wrote my first poem that day my first whole poem, and it was really boring. It was awful. It was a poem about snow, of all things, of course. But I, I began to realize that I could describe the world, that I could mm-hmm. transfer it to the page. The nuns were having us write paragraphs, and I took off writing these paragraphs, which for me turned into prose poems. I didn't know what prose poems were, of course. I was too mm-hmm. young to know anything about prose poems, but they were paragraphs and they were beautiful. And the nuns thought I was plagiarizing from somewhere. And they didn't know where, but they were really sure of it. And they were really angry. And they kept giving me uh, Fs on my writing because they were sure it was copied from somewhere. Wow. So finally one day, this was, in, this was about eighth grade. Then the, I said to the nun, okay, you think I'm copying this. I will stay after school and you give me a subject and I will write it in front of you, okay? And she, she said, okay, let's see. And I, I wrote something, she asked me to describe a plant in the classroom with some kind of foliage, I remember. And I wrote it and it only didn't take me very long, 20, 30 minutes. And, and it was beautiful. And she looked at it and read it, looked at me, read it again, looked at me. And she said, you're dismissed. She didn't say anything. I got to leave. But after that, I got A's on all my work instead of F's. <laughs> so they believed tell me. You that it, she couldn't tell you that it was good. She just. No, no, that wouldn't happen in this particular school. Not for me anyway. But I think they were just embarrassed, mm-hmm. you know. So, okay, I was writing and then I decided, since I was reading a lot of novels, 19th century novels, you know, um, not not great literature, novels about Hessian soldiers occupying colonial houses during the Revolutionary War, you know, romantic novels. And I thought, I can do this. I could make one of these, Hmm. you know, it would just be lots and lots of paragraphs. So I started to write a novel that was not very good. I think I was in the ninth grade and it was a very melodramatic story. And I was the first person character in it, of course. And um, and then when I got, I, I wrote some short stories and essays and I got published in some magazines when I was in high school. Hmm. And then I went to college and I wanted to take the fiction workshop. And the fiction workshop teacher, who will go unnamed here, um, he was enchanted uh, by Ken Kesey and the Merry Pranksters and that whole group of writers. And he ran a workshop, he said, which was a very tough workshop. And he had read some of my stories and he said, no, you, you, you can't take the workshop. 
you can't take the fiction workshop. He said, the only, the only girls in the workshop are, are the girlfriends who come with the writers in the workshop and they sit in. But, you know, I just don't advise it. I think you would just not survive in this workshop. I mean, for him, it was like, so I walked across the hall to Dr. Linda Wagner Martin's office, Dr. Linda Wagner at the time, mm -hmm. and she was teaching the poetry workshop. And she said, sure, you can come and take the poetry workshop. So that is how I sort of got tracked, you know, even though I wow. started by writing both. Wow. It was before feminism, second wave feminism. <laughs> Seems that way, yeah. <laughs> just before. So just sort of jumping ahead um, to the country between sure. and your whole experience in El Salvador, I think um, the impression that people have is that you were attempting to use poetry as reportage um, to yeah. report. Yeah, that's really, really a mistaken impression. <laughs> um, no, I, that it, I wasn't attempting to do anything in those poems except the writing poetry was my escape from the situation I was in working with Lionel, the events that in the memoir. Um, in, in the midst of that, I had notebooks and I just kept writing. And the poems that, there were only seven poems in the book that had anything to do with El Salvador. The rest were all different subjects. Um, and they were first person lyric narrative free verse poems. So they weren't particularly experimental or innovative in any way. Um, but as with all my poems, the details, the images, the events, the voices all come from my life, all come from things I've seen or heard or felt or done or remembered. And, and so seven of those were written not, not even to be poems. They were just my writing in the notebooks at the time. And the Colonel poem was written so that I wouldn't forget details just in case I wrote it, just in case I someday would write about it. <laughs> Not thinking that the thing that was the notes would be the thing that would go into the world. Right. Those were notes. So I could remember the gold bell and the, and the parrot and the lamb, different things. I wanted to remember. And right. I knew that if I didn't write the details down, I would forget. So that's how that came about. Anyway, when it was pub, what, when I first had the collection together, it was about uh, five years after my first book, but I had enough poems for another collection. So I sent them to an editor I respected a lot in, the, in New York, a poetry editor. And he didn't think it was a good idea to publish that manuscript. He told me if I could write some other poems to add to it, on, on very, very different quieter subjects and intersperse those with the other poems that maybe that would work. And I asked him what was wrong with the manuscript, why in his view I should put it away. And he said, well, it's not that it isn't good writing. It is. It's not, it's passionate, but that's not a bad thing. And finally he said it. He said, it's, it's going to be regarded as political, Carolyn, and that will finish you. That will end your career as a poet. You will never 
you will never uh, live through that as a poet. You, you, they will regard you forever as a political poet. And so I thought, okay, so what do you think I should do? He said, write another book, you know, write another book when, when you're over this, when you're over this thing that happened to you in El Salvador. So I had it in the drawer and I was invited to the Portland Poetry Festival and I was going to be assigned to read with Margaret Atwood. And that was a really daunting prospect because Margaret Atwood was, you know, a goddess. You know, she was, and still is. I was afraid. Uh, I was afraid of her even. And what happened was that Mount St. Helens blew up. And so when we were go to the reading, all the people in the audience had scarves over their mouths, in, you know, covered because there was so much silicate in the air. Right. And we each read, and I read the poems from The Country Between Us, the unpublished manuscript. And then she decided we were going to drive together to San Francisco overnight to escape the volcano and to fly back east because she didn't want to stay around that volcano. It had blown up a second time and, you know, the, so I drove us to San Francisco overnight and she kept me awake by telling me about this book she was writing uh, called The Handmaid's Tale. <laughs> and I told her about Salvador. I told her a lot of what I wound up writing in the memoir. And she said, by the way, um, she encouraged me to write a prose book about that. But she also said, what are you doing with those poems? When are they coming out? And I said, oh, they can't be published. <laughs> And she said, what? And I told her about the editor and what he'd said. And she was furious. She was furious. And she said, you take that manuscript out of the drawer when you get home and you send it to this woman in New York. She's an agent. She's not my agent, but she's very nice. And, you know, see what she thinks. So I had a contract with Harper and Bro within, I don't know, a few days. It felt like maybe a week or two, but short. Yeah. And right at that time, there was starting to be news stories about El Salvador for the first time in the newspapers. So the editor at Harper and Row, Ted Solitaroff, thought, well, he rearranged the manuscript so that all of the El Salvador poems appeared in the front. Mm-hmm. And then there was much made of those poems, you know, and the book was kind of presented that way. Right. I mean, there's much more to the story, but I was not um, imagining myself as reporting on El Salvador. I did write some journalistic articles about El Salvador because basically, because there was nobody else around to do it yet. Journalists hadn't gone there yet. So I wrote for the nation and the progressive, but I'd never thought of poetry as reportage. And I still don't. I don't think of witness as an identity. It's not something one is, it's something, it, it's a way of reading a certain kind of work written in the aftermath of extremity. It's not something you produce, you know, from your conscious mind. Poetry doesn't arise out of the conscious mind or the, right. or the limited memory. So it's impossible to do the thing that they thought I was doing, which was the reportage. I've never been able to dispel that though. It's just out there and that's, that's it. I have to live with it. 
I mean, I remember from that time, the controversy around political writing, you know, particularly at Breadloaf in 82 when I first met you. Mm -hmm. I mean, does anybody even think of it that way anymore? Um, I think it's another world now. Uh, in fact, I think it's a very different world now. And I don't, I, I attribute that to a couple of things. Um, but I began to notice a change that started about 20 years ago, around 2000, around 2001, actually, around September 2001, to be precise. Mm. And after the 9-11 attacks, I think U.S. citizens who had not joined the military, who were just living in the United States, suddenly had to look at themselves, their land and the world a different way. Mm -hmm. and, and suddenly it, it didn't seem like we were living in this hermetically sealed, you know, egg of, right. of North American reality. But so it started then, but I really think that voices have emerged over the past two decades that were repressed before, suppressed in various ways, either because the poets were not able to get the opportunities to develop their art or unable to be published, but, but black poets and Asian American poets and indigenous poets and, you know, poets who, who, whose experience reflects a different reality than a calm, safe, contemplative world. And, they have had a great, enormous effect on, on poetic poetry in the United States, I think, in mm -hmm. the last two decades. And now it's almost that you have to have some, there's almost pressure now. And I've, my friends among those poetry communities have told me they sometimes wish they could just write about nothing, you know, <laughs> rather than, but there's almost the other pressure now, you know, you have right. to have a, uh, project or uh, and there's not, and I think it's a I think it's an all right situation right now but I don't think that poets would be condemned any longer for having what used to be deemed political subjects in their work mm -hmm. and what puzzled me was that I went and read all the other poets from the 20th century who had gone through uprisings, wars, revolution, exile, censorship, and they all wrote about it, all of them. And most poets in the world had gone through those things. So I realized that I was growing up in a literary culture that was very different from the literary cultures of everywhere else. And that there was something operating, and I've sort of sorted it out over the years, what was operating when, there was, when, when it was proscribed, you know, when political consciousness was not to be absorbed by poets or developed by poets. And I think it has a lot to do, a lot to do with the reaction to the writers in the thirties and the suppression of those writers um, and then the cold war. And uh, so there was a politics operating in the poetry community, but it wasn't what they might've been aware of you know, they were absolutely political, but not in the direction they recognized. Suppressed. Yeah, they were, they were, um, they were obeying the dictates of the Cold War. And they had absorbed, you know, this, um, they had absorbed the ethos of this Aegon between the superpowers. And, you know, um, 
um, the United States under its own economic system, capitalism, was, you know, desperate to eliminate all other systems so that that would be the default experience of humanity. So I think that, you know, you could say a lot of things, but okay, that's what happened. But as far as my being a political poet, I don't, I don't worry about it anymore because um, it was silly to begin with. I wonder if, if there was also even a absorption of the whole McCarthy hearings. I think so. And there were lots of, you know, look what happened to Langston Hughes and look, I mean, look what happened to a lot of writers in that period. And I, I, maybe the lesson was learned. I remember some older poets, very well-meaning and kind older poets, kind of gently said, you know, maybe you don't want to do this again. Maybe, you, you know, maybe this needs to be put aside for you, you know, and but the problem was I had undergone such a profound change of consciousness and sensibility that I, I couldn't go back. I, I couldn't be anyone else. Just one more question um, about the memoir and how different it was for you to write that as opposed to your poetry. Um, how, how did the intentionality that must have been involved to some extent in doing that change your view of storytelling? Maybe it forced you to adopt a different stance with your writing in general. Well, it was a it was very difficult. I, I spent 23 years trying to avoid writing that memoir. I didn't know I was trying to avoid it, but I know now that I was. I thought I wasn't ready. I didn't have enough perspective or the war was on, it wasn't a good time for that material to be out. And finally, Ilya Kaminsky hmm. told me I wasn't getting any younger. And I had promised Leonel Gomez and Monsignor Oscar Romero, now Saint Oscar Romero of the Americas, I'd promised both of them, the only thing they ever asked of me was write about it someday, write about everything that's happened in the, you know, that you've seen write it. So I, I said, yes, I would. But then I was 53 years old, and I hadn't. So I, I began it when I was 53. And it took 15 years to write it. I have profound respect for long form prose writers. Because <laughs> I wrote three earlier versions, which I had to discard. Um, and the problem was, I could write sentences. And even I discovered I could write dialogue and I certainly could describe things and I could string paragraphs together, but I knew nothing about structuring a book, nothing. And I'd never taken any classes or workshops in prose, you know, not since I was barred from the magic bus Ken Kesey workshop <laughs> as an undergrad. So I had to stumble around on my own and discover things on my own. And so finally, my first version was braided. It had all different parts of my life in it, including El Salvador. And it was a mess. I mean, it was so much there. That you, a memoir is not an autobiography. It's not an accounting of the whole life. It's a slice. Mm -hmm. You know, It's a particular focus on a period or a time or place or event or person. So I, once I narrowed it down, then I discovered that what I really wanted to do was replicate my journey I wanted to write a book that would allow me to show what happened from the beginning. So I decided that 
the reader would never know more than I knew at that time and that I would try insofar as it was possible for me to, to recreate, remember, channel, form, the character of the narrator, the first person narrator as my younger self, not myself now. Right. So she had to be idealistic and naive and, and angry. And, you know, she, she had to have all the problems I had at the time. And then I decided not to jump into the present and say what, you know, and comment on the past events periodically. I didn't want to break the dream of the story. So that helped. And then realizing that I could import some sections from my notebooks helped that I could replicate the language of that time by inserting the written and pencil sections. Mm -hmm. And so um, finally, I, on the fourth version, I was about to give up uh, when I was about, oh, seven eighths finished with, the, with this version because I couldn't figure out how to build the bridge from what I, the ending I had written and the rest of the book. There was no bridge. And I gave myself two weeks more. And I said, you know, you finish this or you put it away and admit to yourself that you can't do it. You can't do it. So I did finish it in those two weeks. You know, I didn't realize that was going to happen. In terms of the intention, the only intention I began with was that I would, I would write the story that happened to me without any exaggeration, without any, anything except what happened. This is a problem because if a novelist can just go with their imagination and, you know, but with me, I was sort of stuck with what happened, you know? So if you're writing a memoir, you, the only freedom you have is the freedom to rearrange the, the chronology or you can tell it different ways, you know, or in different sequences or, but I wasn't free to, to bring material to the book that, that I didn't have, you know, that I didn't experience. So that's a limitation, you know, if you really want to think about it. You're stuck with the characters you, you, you knew. You're stuck with what they said. You're stuck with yourself, which is a really big stuck. And, you know, but I, I really learned a lot from writing it. And I learned that it's a lot like writing poetry, really, which is what Michael Andace always said to me. You know, just it's just like writing a poem. Just write it like a poem, you know. And I thought, Michael, no, it's pages and pages. <laughs> so, but he was right. Finally, you you dream on paper, which is what Marilyn Robinson says. You dream on paper. Put your pen on the paper and let it go. You know, you'll you'll wander your way into something, and then later you'll shape and work on it, but. You know, it's always the same, a white sheet of paper, you know, and that's it. And you have to be led by your hand more than your mind. The whole trick is trying to get out of your way and, and let the story tell itself. Mm -hmm. People ask me, how do you remember all, even Leonel asked me, how did I remember everything like that? And I said, well, for one thing, it's all in me. If I just um, start telling it, then everything starts to assemble itself, you know? 
I had really great recall for those two particular years. But even so, you know, one detail remembered leads to another one and another one, you know. Mm -hmm. And I, I looked up things like I always checked the weather. I thought I remembered the weather, but I, there's a place you can go on the internet where you can plug in a day and a place in history. And they'll tell you whether it was snowing or what it was doing. No way. Yes, you can, you can do that now. Um, there's a lot of things you can research really quickly that you couldn't before. But so I really, really, really checked everything in the book really, really carefully. And it was checked by other people too. And it was checked by everyone else who experienced it with me. And finally, I thought, okay, you know, I can stand by every, every single thing here. And I don't have to worry about publishing it. And then, of course, at that time, there was a lot of thinking about writing about other cultures, if you weren't that culture. You know, my book takes place largely in El Salvador. I'm not Salvadoran. And I did, that did concern me a little bit um, because of those discussions. But I realized that I had always inhabited my own subject position, my own self. So it was really a North American woman's story of being in a situation and trying to see it as clearly as possible. And the reaction of Salvadoran Americans and Salvadorans was really positive was really wonderful. I didn't have any, um, and, and that proves to me that what they're saying is right. It doesn't, it's not that you can't write about another people or another culture, it's how did you do it, you know? And so it, it's not about, you know, creating fences and boundaries and barbed wire around subject matter. It, you know, it's about consciousness and approach and respect and and accuracy right well, so i mean this gave, this gave me a lot of confidence that um that someday we'll we'll be in a much better place about that i don't want to restrict the imagination mm. um, and say you know a man can't write about a woman and a woman you know this but 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 they do have a very important concern when they talk about uh, how one positions oneself with respect to one, what is one is writing about. Right. And how how well that world was brought to the page. What was it brought in such a way that the people in in the work would recognize themselves as whole human beings. And, and you represented yourself as you were. You didn't claim anything. No, I, I was, unfortunately, I had to live with the fact that I was um, naive and idealistic and I didn't know, I didn't know what I was doing. I fell into doing things by accident and I did them. And the only thing credit I can give that young woman is she she did say yes all the time. She did she did everything, right? I give her credit uh -huh. for that. But I gave Lionel such a hard time, you know, I really did. I'm not saying he didn't give me one too, but you know, I was a, a really sometimes feisty gringa, you know, I was like and I didn't know things. I didn't know enough. And my Spanish was terrible. That right. was another problem. 
got better, but you know, everything eventually got better, but I wanted to stay who I was then and not make her smarter or, you know, mm -hmm. I, uh, everything I did pretty much in that book was done mostly, mostly because I was in situations that Lionel had put me in or by accident, you know, it was uh, really, it, you know, and it's, it's hard to, you have to be honest with yourself about you know, your, your own fault, faults and limitations and things. And, and I really wanted to be who I was at the time. Now, when we met, I was only out of this situation for two years. Mm. And now I know that during that whole period, I was pretty traumatized. You know, I was walking around in the United States in those early years of the 80s was really a different experience for me. I was in a little bit of a cloud, you know, mm. because it, it, it was always slightly unreal when, you know, when there were attacks on the country between us or all this talk about political poetry and all of that, it was always a little, um, I was always a little removed from it. Mm. It's like something happening in a fog. Mm. And I would think these, they don't understand, you know, they couldn't possibly understand. So we right. just have to let this go. Right. But that's what stories are for, right? If their stories are to build bridges to those situations. Mm -hmm. If, you know, the book is a bridge back to that period and the book is a bridge to the world that the refugees are fleeing now. Mm. The refugees on our border, I mean, they're not, they're not migrants, they're refugees of war. Right. And so that this is, and this in, in what you have heard is true, that that's where it started. That, that's a glimpse, it's a little window into that time just before the war began. Well, thank you so much, Carolyn. I really appreciate your time and your thank you. And uh, Thank you very much. And really, it's an honor to be asked to be here and have and be able to have the opportunity to talk about these things. The Story Talks Back is produced and hosted by Dave Stanton. The music you're hearing now was written and performed by Christopher Daydream. The theme music at the beginning of our show is an excerpt from Play by Merlin Twelfthoven, performed by Kronos Quartet as part of their 50 for the Future series. Please subscribe to the Story Talks Back on Podbean and check us out on Instagram. See you next time.